Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind the scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer podcast brought to you by Wild and Exposed and NAMPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. I'm Dawn Wilson, president of NAMPA, along with Mark Raycroft and Ron Hayes from Wild and Exposed. And we have a super, super fun guest for you tonight. We have Lee Hoy, NAMPA member extraordinaire, um, guide extraordinaire, and... We're going to have a fun conversation with them. I think this is going to be a pretty, pretty enjoyable conversation. Not that other ones haven't been, but I think we've got some fun stuff that we're going to chat about here. So welcome, Lee. It's always, always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you, Don. Appreciate it, Mark and Ron. Nice Good to, to have you. you, Lee. I will say we tried to do this a couple of weeks ago. We had some technical difficulties and the conversation that we had just via the chat accessory from our recording software was enough for me to be excited about having Lee on as a regular guest. So you guys are in for a treat. Well, thank you very much. So hopefully the wind's not as bad tonight either, Lee. I know you were having, you were having a pretty good windstorm. We were up here on the mountain in West Texas. It has been beautiful day, great weather, mule deer, white-tailed deer out in the yard, the javelinas. So Everything is good. Internet's working. Life is great right now. Just got back from Panama and photographing dart frogs. So it has been a uh, great past few weeks, but I'm glad to be home for a little bit. Yeah, you've been busy. You've had, and, and I, as I mentioned, you do a lot of guiding. You work with a lot of different tour companies. You do your own guiding and we'll get, we'll get into all that. But the last, I think, gosh, probably now it's been three months. I think you've been home less than a month over the course of the last three or four months. Yeah, you know, I calculated up and I had been home out of the last like 67 days. I think it's six days. All the rest has been on the road. So living out of a suitcase, hotels, lodges, but all in spectacular locations. Where have you been? Well, I started out in Southeast Alaska out of Petersburg where we do a photographic workshop for Wildside Nature Tours on a nice little yacht up there with like six clients. Went from there to Galapagos Islands, where of course hitting the islands, the iguanas, the birds, I mean, just beautiful weather, great photographic subjects. And then Ecuador where we did hummingbirds and some of the high elevation stuff. Then we flew to Cape May, New Jersey for the birding festival, back home for a few days and then Panama to do dart frogs and sloths and night walks for macro. So all the lenses have been smoking hot lately and the memory cards have been clicking. As a native of New Jersey, I find the New Jersey part listed amongst Galapagos and Ecuador and all these other places kind of ironic and funny. Well, I'll tell you, the the accents are the most interesting there. Like, <laughs> you know, that was my first time to be at the Cape May New Jersey Festival. I've been in Jersey before, but to be at the festival. And 
so often the accent, everybody sounds upset at first <laughs> to me. Now you realize they're not, but for a boy from West Texas, it's definitely a different world. Like, oh my God, you know, when you're going to the store somewhere, everybody's about, what is it, Wawa? You got to go to Wawa. You got to go to Wawa. And I'm like, man, you could put. 50 Wawa's in one Bucky's in Texas. So, you that know, is true. I was less than impressed. They're okay. But. That is true. But every time I go back, the first place I have to go is Wawa to get a, a shorty hoagie. It's, yeah, it's something it's about Wawa. It's potato chips and a Wawa, either chocolate milk or iced tea. And it's just, you just can't get it at any place else. I think it has to do with the bread out there. Uh, okay, <laughs> but yes, my mom laughs at me. She's always she's like, what, "Are we going to Wawa on the way home?" Of course, absolutely. Uh, yeah, everybody's got to go to Wawa. We've got locations like the Galapagos and Panama. And we're talking about chocolate milk <laughs> <laughs> from Wawa. Listen, I come <laughs> from. Well, Wawa. you're not getting any chocolate milk in the Galapagos <laughs> Islands, so I'll tell you that. <laughs> I remember when Wawa's were just a little fledgling. So for those that don't know what a Wawa is, it's kind of, it's Jersey's, Pennsylvania's equivalent to a 7-Eleven, but with a, a much better deli. And over the years, they've really expanded out to what they have, but they've just started. In, in college, it was this place we stopped at two in the morning on the way home from the bar. But um, yeah, they've kind of grown into selling gas and all kinds of other stuff these days, but I do miss them. So, so what's your next trip? Do you have anything else? Are you staying home for a little while? Uh, no. Well, I decided to take Thanksgiving off and just hang around the house, maybe photograph some of the critters up here in the yard, catch up on post-processing. But I'm doing, um, you mentioned earlier, I, I, I own Big Ben Birding and photo tours. I do photography workshops for wildside nature tours based out of Pennsylvania. And then I do precision camera workshops for precision camera in Austin, Texas. So the next one is going to Bosque del Apache for precision camera. And then I come back in December and I've got some, um, you know, tours in Big Bend. And then I'm gonna take a little break around Christmas because then it's two weeks in Yellowstone for winter, which is just spectacular, man. You can, as far as I'm concerned, you can close it up for the summer. I don't want to be there in the crowds, but put me there in the winter and I'm in hog heaven. When will you be there, Lee? I think I head out on January 7th and then we're there for, gosh, a little over two weeks, maybe 14 days or so. Uh, the, our tours keep getting more and more popular. So we added another one and filled it right up. So, you know, when you start posting pictures, laying on your belly of a wolf trotting at you at 30 yards away, people get interested and want to come. So I had a three mustel a day. Uh, one day we had a long tail weasel, pine marten and river otter and then the three canid day we had red fox coyote and wolf so you know you start throwing those kind of things out and people are like man i want to go with you so there's something about laying in snow on your belly looking up at coyotes or wolves or bison that's just i mean how do you explain that to people you know it's a it, it develops a memory and experience that's going to linger with you the rest of your life you know that wolf stopped howled and you know, you want to photograph, but you also just want to etch that into your memory as well. So for me, I always do these presentations called Making the Most of the Wildlife Photographic Experience because, you know, if we if we get a great image, but we don't have much of an experience, that seems kind of a stale, cold, I don't know, moment for me. But if we have a great experience, but no image, well, that's not really photography. So I want people to keep those two things in balance, 
because you know so many of us in America, you know, wah, 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 we complain about what's happening on the, you know, here, what's over here. But the reality is, we live in a country where we have the freedom to go spend time pursuing photographing wolves in Yellowstone in winter, when many other countries people are trying to figure out how they're going to eat tonight. So I never want to take that for granted. Every moment, you know, I was on my knees in the Panamanian forest at night on this little island, finding frogs and toads and lizards and insects and. Every subject is just for me this great moment where I never want to take for granted my next image, my next subject. And uh, for me, that's a big part of why I do what I do, because I'm like this silly little kid inside that every time I find a new bug, a new a new frog, a, a new bird, whatever I find and I get a great image, I just feel giddy inside and, and uh, I can be exhausted. I'm like, yeah, I'm everybody goes, Lee, are you going out tonight to walk around, uh, do macro at night? And I'm like, well, of course, I'm not dead yet. So <laughs> <laughs> That is a great thought. Yeah. I've been I've been having those thoughts a lot lately with everything that's going on in our country and and uh, you wanna you wanna bellyache a little bit, but then I have some friends that live in Mongolia, and I hear what's going on there. And in our worst day, we have it very good. And like you said, we always have the opportunity to get out, escape, and and enjoy the natural world. So I appreciate you saying that and articulating it so well. You know, I, I've been to Haiti on mission trips six times to a very remote village. And when you see the same fish in the marketplace three days in a row in the heat with flies, and then you hear Americans griping about food or, oh, my God, we got to deal with this. And I, I just say everybody should go to Haiti, to some remote village for seven days, and you'll come back and you will, won't complain about anything. You'll go, you know what, got it pretty good. Um, and, and I think that's important that we as photographers, let's face it, many of us out doing this, whether we're professionals, advanced amateurs, just hobbyists that are going out for fun, how, how, how blessed are we that we get to go out and take images of spectacular scenery, beautiful wildlife or insects, whatever your passion is, whatever your night sky, I mean, whatever it is, uh, don't take it for granted. Don't forget the beauty and the and the being immersed in that critter's world. I mean, when I'm when I'm looking through my macro lens in particular, and I'm so close to a spider, to a frog or a toad, man, it's so cool to get in their world and see the giant world from their perspective. And for me, that that's what makes my heart pump, man. I love that stuff. I can eat that stuff up. Yeah, and then wash it down with the chocolate milk from Wawa. <laughs> there's that there is that there's that or a moscow mule or something like that there, <laughs> can up any, yeah. From chocolate milk. <laughs> yeah so i want to hear more about panama i mean that was your most recent trip correct dart frogs dart frogs were the uh the target species or the primary one of the main one of the main subjects yes we go to tranquillo bay uh, Eco Adventure Lodge, which believe it or not is owned by some Texans. So uh, you have to get there by boat. It's in the Boca del Torres region of Panama, kind of on the in the northwest, but in the Caribbean side, but in the northwest side of the country. And it's really pretty amazing when you get in there. The forest is thick, and you think photography can be really challenging, but sitting on the deck of the lodge 
We had both two-toed and three-toed sloths. We had uh, night monkeys. We had woolly possums, four-eyed possums. We had white-faced capuchins uh, that were not happy to see us. Got some great shots of them baring their teeth. And, uh, man, we we just go out at night walks, mangrove crabs. There's a mangrove swamp, and then you walk up these stairs, and then you're in the jungle, and you're just surrounded. We we had a, a... double-toothed kite, land right on a branch at eye level, consuming one of the giant red grasshoppers. And you'll be honest, I had a little tear in my eye. I know a lot of people, they go out and they're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, great shot. But man, every moment that I get a chance to capture some great images just speaks to me. And I think a part of it was I grew up as a, as a child of educators and, and we didn't get to go on big, fancy, exotic trips. I mean, my parents worked their hind end off so my brother and I could play sports and have clothes and whatnot. So there was no going to Panama. I, I, but I looked at maps and Nat Geo and Arizona Highways, Texas High, uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Magazines, just dreaming of what it would be like to experience these places. So now when I stand there, uh, you know, looking through my Olympus lens and gear and, man, I'm, I'm focused in. I just become so immersed in that world because I remember as a kid looking at images, just thinking how cool it would be to be there and and to know that now maybe my images could speak to someone now who may not have the funds or the resources or the opportunity to ever go to some of these places. And if it brings them some joy looking at my images, that makes me so much more happier than seeing my image in print. And while I like having my images in print, you know, and I love hearing attaboys on social media. If someone can look at something that they know they're never going to get to see through my images, then, man, my heart's pumping, my energy's flowing, and I'm stoked. I agree. There is something really special about sharing experiences and opportunities with others that may not be able to see that or maybe never even realize that there was that type of opportunity. And now you've you've opened a world to them that they start to explore. That's it. You know, my wife, this was her first time to accompany me uh, out of country, not counting Canada, you know, but uh, she got to go on this and and photograph and and see some of the awesome wildlife. And so just watch her get to enjoy it too. It was pretty cool. What was her favorite, favorite thing on the trip? Oh man. What was, uh, you know, we had some amazing sloth experiences, you know, full frame images of it pulling the the vegetation to its mouth. One crawled to the ground, walked over to another tree. So I'm at, I'm at eye level with the sloth on the ground, which is really unusual, as you know, to try to get a sloth at ground level. So that was, that was a big highlight because we had three different sloths where they're just out in the open, you know, frame filling face. One was grooming, scratching its head. And all three times were really nice light, extended viewing, and, and really nice. And frankly, almost all of them were from the deck of the lodge. <laughs> Crazy. You don't really need that 30 frames a second for that kind of action, though, do you? No, but somehow I still managed to end up with thousands of each. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those. I, pr- I, I press the button a lot because for me, as you guys know, no matter, no matter what you can see through a viewfinder, even with mirrorless, we're looking at real time. It's just amazing what can change from one frame to the next, even when you're using a fast shutter speed, particularly with hummingbirds and whatnot, what you think you saw and what ends up on the image can sometimes be so different that I think that's that element of surprise when we all pull our images into whatever editing software we use. 
we we think we know what we captured, and all of a sudden it's on a twenty seven inch screen. You're like, and you're either celebrating that, yeah, oh yeah, 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 or you're like, oh man, it just almost, you know. I love that part. So for somebody who's been shopping mirrorless for a year or so and just a constantly changing landscape, when you say Olympus, and I, I have other friends that shoot Olympus, and correct me if I'm wrong, the terminology might not be right, but the pre-record on the mirrorless uh, Olympus, are you absolutely loving that? How big a how big a deal is that for your shooting? Yeah, you know, I, I switched to Olympus in April, I believe it was 2019. I'd been a Canon shooter for 25 years and just got tired of lugging around the weight. But I had not found anything in mirrorless that even came close to what I was looking for. So at one point I was shooting Canon, Sony, and Olympus. And while Sony sensor and autofocus was great, the lack of features, the constant dirt on a sensor, it just turned me off. And... Um, the Olympus really captured my attention. And one of the things that you just mentioned was a, a feature called Pro Capture. There's low and high. And as you notice, pre-record, well, the, the Olympus OMD EM1X has a Pro Capture high or Pro Capture low where once you press the shutter button, there are four processors in this image. So it begins to record images to a buffer, but not to the hard drive. Because like in the Galapagos, I was shooting the marine iguanas as they expel the salt out of their nostrils. Well, if you try, if you think about trying to capture that with any other system, you have to just hammer on the shutter and you're going to be recording an obscene number of images. Well, with Olympus, I just pick a likely subject. I try to find a good background where the salt will show up well. And I half press the shutter button and it begins to record images in buffer. And as soon as I've seen this happens, I fully press the shutter button and it records a set number of images prior and then X number of images after, as long as you hold the shutter button down and you really don't need to keep holding the shutter button down because what's happened is so fast. Your reflexes are recording the images prior, not after. And that has revolutionized some photography. You don't want to use a lot because you're recording an obscene number of images at 60 frames or even at 18 frames per second. So, but nobody else with any other camera system on any of our Glocks workshops has recorded that. So it is truly a revolutionary feature among many others. And, you know, Olympus invited me to be an Olympus educator approximately uh, right around a year after having been using the equipment, which to me was a tremendous honor. I was very grateful for that. And I'm very proud to be an Olympus educator. I believe it's one of the biggest accomplishments that I've had so far in my career. And I represent them with pride and uh, I use their equipment. I I've paid for almost all my own equipment. So people say, well, you're getting paid to this. Uh, no, not really. I mean, I spend my money on their gear because it's so good. And the new Olympus 150 to 400, which is a 4.5 constant with a 1.25 teleconverter at a flip of a switch. I'm at a thousand millimeters. I've handheld that at one quarter of a second tack sharp. And on this last trip, Kevin with Wildside Nature Tours, he put the doubler and the 1.4 on top of it because this double tooth kite came in the second day, perched on a branch out in the open and sat there for almost an hour. And he thought, well, I might as well fire off some test shots of these. And at one point, that thing, it was still ungodly tag sharp. So for me, it's the portability, the lightweight, uh, how much gear I can get in a carry on bag. You know, so lots of we had limited space on the plane to Panama. So for me, those are some of the big features that have really jumped out at me. 
and live composite mode makes photographing lightning not even a challenge. You just got to get in a place where there's lightning and it's going to record bolts. You know, it's it's really changed a lot of the images we get that before we wouldn't have captured. So, how does that process work, Lee? The uh, compositing, the live compositing. Yeah, great question, Ron. So with the Olympus Live Composite, you set a base exposure, you know, whether you're shooting a storm during the day or shooting a storm in the evening or at night, whatever your base exposure is, you, you establish that. And then you turn on Live Composite and you set your shutter speed in the menu. It's a little different than just setting up a typical manual exposure. You do a manual exposure to get your base settings. You go into the system, turn on Live Composite, set your exposure in the menu, your shutter speed, basically. And then what you do is you start the image and it takes that first base exposure. Let's say that base exposure is one second. Okay. It's going to take that exposure one second over and over and over as long as you allow it to without until you press the shutter button again. And it is only going to record pixels that have a brighter value than the prior exposures. So you're not going to blow out any highlights. So say you got your nice base setting and you get 10 lightning bolts over eight minutes and you let that thing run for eight minutes. It's going to record all those lightning bolts, but everything else will remain the same. Now, if you have wind and vegetation, you'll get some movement, you know, and things like that. But if you're talking about getting lights in this, you know, or uh, headlights in a, in a cityscape as a car drives. If you're looking at lightning, uh, light painting, my gosh, somebody did a swan light painting on water. There's a video on the Olympus side of how that was done. Mind boggling creativity, but you can do a lot of different things with it. I love it for lightning. I like it. I want to do it with lightning bugs. I haven't got to do that yet, you know, for car headlights through a landscape, things like that. So Again, I, you don't need any of your lightning bugs or any of your MEOPS triggers. I'm going to be selling, getting rid of all that stuff. So Live Composite can let you do a lot of great things if you want to do night sky, light painting, and whatnot. So, yeah, a lot of great features there. It's got Live Bulb, which you can watch the image expose, and that won't prevent things from blowing out, but you can actually start it and watch the back develop so you can stop it whenever you think your image is where it should be. So lifetime, live bulb, live composite, lots of great features in the Olympus. Very interesting. How did you, in a new system like that with so many different features that are unique to that system, how did you kind of get yourself comfortable with using them, especially since you teach others how to use use that type of technology. So I'm going to be honest, the first two weeks when I got home, I was frustrated because there was so much to learn. And I'm a man who reads owner's manuals or instruction manuals. In fact, I'm obsessive about it. For all my camera bodies, I've probably read them three or four times. And I always am amazed at the lack of people who read it, which of course is great job reliability for us because somebody has to teach them how to use their gear, right? So for the first two weeks, I was just like, oh, my gosh, there are so many buttons. There's so many features, so many options. And some of them I disabled at first because they were frustrating. And now I could live without them, you know. I dedicated myself 
to being in my backyard. It was my peak hummingbird system here in the uh, my peak hummingbird time here in the yard. So I took the system out and just started playing with it with the hummingbirds. And I started realizing some of the things I could do, like the digital autofocus limiter. You know, I, you can set your you can go in your menu and say, I only want you to autofocus from five feet to 20 feet or 13 feet to 30 feet, or you can set a one foot range. That's phenomenally powerful when you're shooting at blinds or at set locations, perches, hummingbird feeders, whatever it might be. So for me, once I began to discover those features and learn them and learn them over time. And what I would do is here in Big Bend where I live and I'm up in the Davis Mountains nearby. You know, in the summer, we get such great storms. I would just go out and play with it, which is, I think a lot of people in post-processing or their camera gear, they're afraid to play with it. They're afraid they're going to mess something up. But holy cow, it's digital, man. Delete a crappy image or, you know, whatever. So if you mess, you can't mess up a raw file in Photoshop or Lightroom, you know, just play. So I, that was what I did. I spent two weeks dedicated reading the manual. And then, you know, you find, I think this is probably true for a lot of photographers. You start learning and then all of a sudden you're ready for the next stage of what you need to learn and progress. Like I really need to spend a lot more time with focus stack in, in the Olympus gear. And I really haven't had that much of a time to mess with it, but that's the next one I really want to kind of get down and master a little more for both landscapes and macro. There's always something new to learn, right? I think that's a part of the fun for me. I was I was a son of two educators and my grandfather was a professor. So to me, if I'm not learning, I'm probably getting bored. Well, these cameras will do it. They're just so dynamic. I mean, I've never had an experience like with the mirrorless systems. Compared to the days of slides, I mean, it was just what do you play with, right? You play with your aperture, your shutter, your depth of field. And even that was fun and what you could manipulate an image. But now... Geez, where do you start? I mean, it, and you have to have that patience and 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 be willing to just. I, I like your description of playing with it, keeping it light and and learning and and seeing where it takes you. Right. After all, it's not slides; it's it's digital. You can do that yeah, and not know, suffer any expense. And and that's the thing. I, I I find so many clients who really don't mess with stuff until they arrive at a destination where they've spent an obscene amount of money to get there. And I always tell everybody your backyard or a local park is a great place to go play and experiment and learn something. And I, I know people hire us on a workshop to learn. And obviously I love teaching and I love to equip people when they're out in the field. But the fact is, is we all live somewhere. Even if you're in the biggest city, there's going to be a local neighborhood park nearby to give you a chance to practice. And that's the biggest thing, you know, now, Olympus and, and some of the other systems has bird tracking, autofocus. And now, rather than worrying about autofocusing, now I'm worried about composing an image while a bird's in flight. I mean, you know, before we used to just shoot birds in flight, and then you kind of worry about composition post-capture a lot of times, right? Now I'm looking at the composition as the bird's in flight. It's just amazing what we can accomplish as soon as we press a shutter button, you know, and now Lightroom's latest update, it has the masking feature. And I've been spending time learning that, you know, I just judged a camera show, a uh, camera club show the other day. And I would tell you 90% of the images could have benefited from advanced photo processing. And a lot of people don't want to take time to learn it. I get it. It's tedious. There's a lot to it, but my gosh, it's so critical to what we do. Lee, obviously you didn't start out, 
being an educator and a, and a trainer and leading workshops and Mark brought up, you know, the slide slide days. So I kind of wanted to ask where you got started. Has this been something that you've always done? Yeah. You know, I was very fortunate in that. Well, I guess in this respect, I was fortunate. My mom had a broken Canon AE1. What was broken was the meter didn't work. And I read John Shaw's book, The Nature, or the something about the photography of nature. Or I forgive me for butchering the title of his book and my idol, you know, in that sense. But I read that book and learned the Sunny F sixteen rule. And I would take slide film and go to the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge in Oklahoma, near where, not too far from where I lived. And I would take that calculation and make all the calculations in my head and take pictures. Frankly, a lot of them were were yeah, you know. Uh, but and I had a short lens. My mom probably I think it was a 50 millimeter lens or something. But it was great because I didn't have the crutch of the meter. I had to learn. So I shoot manual 100 percent of the time because it might as well. That's what I did to begin with. And I really got into it. My grandparents bought me a Canon 630 uh, film camera. And the first L lens, I believe, was the 100 to 300 uh, 4.5 to 5.6 L. It was an expensive lens back then, but my grandparents bought it for me because I was a spoiled little turd from by my grandparents. <laughs> and uh, so then I began to get get more interested in photography. But then what happened was I got interested in bird watching through my photography here in Big Bend National Park. And when that camera when that camera broke, digital was just coming out. It was very expensive. And I'd gotten really into birding and I set my camera down and kept my binoculars in front of my face all the time for a few years. And then one day I was sitting there going, oh, I was on the Pribloff Islands. I remember having muskox clothes. I had an Arctic fox come up, sit by me, uh, you know, a harbor seal trying to eat a halibut, all kinds. Of, and I just said, oh, my gosh, I have no images. So I said, you know what, it's time to get a camera again. And Greg Lasley, a friend of mine who just passed away here in Texas, phenomenal photographer, uh, photographer he was capturing great images of birds and dragonflies and damselflies. And he got me interested in that. And I kind of started learning all over again, really focusing on composition, post-processing and the use of flash. And I got really into it and started doing more and more. I had a few friends that went out and I would have loved to have been a professional back then, but frankly, I wasn't ready to be in terms of the quality of my imagery. And I kept working, kept working, went through a divorce, had to sell all my camera gear, had to buy it again. And people say, Lee, you really should look into this. And what happened was when I was about 48 years old, about four years ago, I realized I was tired of working for other people and particularly idiots. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure she's not listening to this podcast, but uh, it'll be all right. If she does, I really don't care. She was an idiot. <laughs> so, you know, I said, how old do you have to be? Before we finally say, I'm ready to be what I wanted to be when I was growing up. And I told my wife, I said, I've lost everything once before. So what if we lose it all over again? I mean, we'll build it back up. And I said, I really think this is a great thing. My heart is with Big Ben. There are no other local professional photography guides. There's other NAMPA members who lead workshops in Big Ben, but none of them live out here. You know, if you Google Yellowstone guides or Grand Teton or whatever, you'll get obscene numbers. I thought, I think there's a latent demand here and I think I could fit that. And so I moved to Fort Davis out here in the mountains. And the first few months I thought, Oh buddy, <laughs> those dice might be coming up bad for me. 
But then a PBS Nature Special contacted me and wanted me to be a scout, animal wrangler, and help them. So for 18 months, I worked on that. And tours started picking up, bird watching tours picked up in Big Ben. Then I met Kevin with Wildside at the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival and invited me to Bosque, and we hit it off. And he said, hey, why don't you start doing some tours for me? I said, man, I'd love to. And uh, Lisa Langell, who y'all probably know, is just, gosh, what a brilliant woman, phenomenal photographer, great leader, great friend. Um, just, I idolize her, the way her clients adore her. And she was supposed to lead a Wildside Galapagos tour. And then, as you know, she was diagnosed with cancer and, and bravely fought it and doing very well now, thankfully, for what a wonderful woman. And Kevin called and said, with like two weeks' notice, can you go to the Galapagos? I said, sure. And, you know, I, he went and saw me in the field. And one of the things I pride myself on is how I am with my clients. So from there, it has been an absolute whirlwind of just escalating goodness and blessings and opportunities opening up with precision camera and Olympus. And, man, I tell you, honestly, I'm about to <laughs> wear myself out. And that's a great thing when you love what you do, isn't it? It is. I know that number was 50 for me. Yeah, see, there's something about 50, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a a great story and a very thorough background. I appreciate that. And it's fun for people to hear just exactly, you know, everybody wants that instant gratification with everything. And I don't think photography is any different. You know, people pick up a camera and they want to be a professional. And and you see that at the local level, especially if you're a portrait or a wedding photographer. How many portrait photographers are there in a small town? There's about 200 right here in Douglas. We have 6,000 people in town. Everybody with a, you know, a digital camera is running a portrait business. And the problem is, is those people weed themselves out pretty quick because they haven't taken the time to learn their craft. And so I always encourage people that ask, you know, to just be patient. And I was, I was at a point where I couldn't have been any more patient either. I was, I was done, but it, uh, it definitely was worth taking the time to learn and taking the time, honestly, to, you know, Mark, when I met Mark, he was shooting the Nikon system, D850 and the 200 to 500. I had always been with Canon. Well, sorry, my first camera was Sony, but I'd been with Canon other than that. And to learn a new system as well, especially for what you're doing, you know, learn as many of those systems as you possibly can. And then you can help every client that, that comes through your path. That being said, what do you see now? Is, is anything changing for the percentage of clientele that are wanting to get some video in addition to their stills. You know, it's funny. You brought that up. You asked that question because, you know, I've been talking to Skip Hobie, who's the cinematographer that worked on the PBS special out here in Big Ben. And, you know, I'm always trying to look down the road at what other kind of opportunities or latent demand might there be for different workshops and even for nature photography. And as much as I eschew a lot of things about the iPhone and, you know, having to deal with people walking up to the, face of a bird or something trying to get a close shot with an iPhone, there's probably going to be a need for workshops for the iPhones at some point, you know, landscape, whatever, for people who that's all they want to do. But the video thing, I do think 
is going to become more and more prevalent because of social media opportunities like TikTok. You know, our attention span is being trained to be now about 15 seconds to two minutes. And it's really kind of pathetic in a way. But that's a reality we have to deal with. And so I have been looking at what kind of things can we do in the future that would help people maybe on that video aspect. You know, the problem, Ron, and and this is one I encountered early on because I'm built a scotch. I'm scotch. I'm built like a mule. I would carry three different camera bodies and lenses and try to do it all at once. And I learned if I'm going to go do macro, go do macro. If I'm going to do bird photography, do bird photography. Same way, if I'm going to do video, I need to do video. Because, you know, your stabilization, if you're going to pan smooth, it's really a different world if you want to do it with excellence, right? I'm not talking about the kind of video that gets grandma patting your back. I mean, I'm talking about, and, and I only know trying to do my best. And I'm, I think that's a good habit a lot of times, but I think it wears you to the ground sometimes. But I do believe that as we move forward, as video capability gets better, I do think we're going to see an opportunity for workshops in the field they're going to take into account video. And a part of that is I think we're going to see a lot of hybridization. I mean, the pro capture mode on Olympus in large way is basically having a processor big enough in your camera to take video stills and select some images out basically in some ways. So I am curious as to what the near term, the five to 10 year is going to look like. I have a niece who's studying film at Pepperdine and I've given her Olympus and she's bought some Olympus gear. I've given her a gimbal that I thought I'd be using and whatnot. And she's blew me away the first video she sent me. And so we're actually going to take her as an intern to the Galapagos because I think video is going to come into play in promoting our workshops more and at first, I bought a big gimbal to use with Olympus. I mean, there's a lot to it. Now I have a gimbal for my iPhone. I've got the iPhone 13 because of the video capability. And in the Galapagos, I recorded video, put images together, and I had a wonderful 50-minute video within about two weeks of when we completed the workshop. And you guys know, it's not like we're looking for more work. But I, I do I agree with you, Ron. I think video is going to be an interesting field in the next 10 years at most, if not sooner, just like Skip was telling me, because we have Apple TV, we got Netflix, we got Amazon, and all these places are feeding money into documentaries. So cinematography's never been more in higher demand for, you know, nature's uh, video. And I think as our urban population gets further and further separated from nature, that these little snippets of video from nature are, are going to be more and more important uh, for a variety of purposes. So I am keeping an eye on that. I keep thinking at times I'm going to shoot more video, but man, there is something to me about the click of a shutter that is different than video for me. So I do, I do think it's going to be important. I agree with you on that. You know, the point of, if you're out there photographing macro, photograph macro. If you want to photograph birds, photograph birds. If you want to photograph landscapes, photograph landscapes and not trying to mix. Because I know there's been times where I've wanted to go out and photograph video and photos. And it's I'm always drawn back to that photo. I'm like, oh, I'm going to miss that moment. I'm going to miss that specific moment in time with the photograph 
if my camera is set to video. Now, obviously, you can do two, you can have two tripods. You can set up one camera for video and one for, but then your 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 thought process is torn between the two. You can you could be kind of working on settings on the video camera, and then you miss something on the. So it's still the same situation, even if you have two cameras. So I I do agree with you, and I've I did the same thing. I bought the 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 latest iPhone for the the video on it, and I've been doing quite a bit just within the last few weeks. And it's, it's phenomenal how much easier it's, it has made it. And it's going to just catapult where video is going. And I mean, you, you mentioned 10 years. <laughs> I'm thinking like a year or two years of, I'm curious what, what it's going to be like. And, and I agree. But in, if, but as you alluded to about photography, here's what I like about photography. It is impossible to ever capture the exact same image even with eight people standing in a row at the same scene, because nobody's sensor can be at the exact same spot as someone else's sensor at that moment. And so every image, whether captured with a nice, you know, professional mirrorless camera or captured with the world's crappiest phone, every image is different. Even though they might look somewhat similar, they're not. They are absolutely not. And I think for me, that fraction of a second or seconds, depending on the exposure, is special to me. That is different to me than video. And I love video. I mean, working on that PBS Nature special taught me so much because there's things cinematographers look at in a different way than a photographer would be, oh, no, we're not going to do that. No, but it looks great on film. So it's a different world. I've read several books now on video. One of my favorites so far was How to Shoot Videos That Don't Suck. And uh, <laughs> I like that. I have to write that down. It is. It's a great book. But I also realized that just like with photography, if you're going to do with excellence, it requires an immense amount of time, dedication, skills, you know, unique equipment. And it, it's a different world. It's a truly a different world. You know, we had uh, a guest, Jorge Hauser, on the podcast a couple of years ago. It does a lot of underwater uh, photo- photography. And, and the question came up about video back then because it's becoming more and more enticing to all of us with the ease of capability of this equipment. But there's that that balance, that challenge of doing both. And he, he summarized it in a way that I really appreciated. We all love the video. I love how it captures sound and action and, and can visually transport someone to that experience so readily but how often do we go back and watch that video over and over again if you have a very special image and you do a nice print of it it's appreciated multiple times by many people compared to watching something on a screen so there's that part of of still photography that i i still appreciate and and it draws me back to still photography for that reason as well I think this is one time where video of people for me is often more powerful than video of animals. And by that, I mean a video of my grandfather who's been passed, right? That brings back that memory with him. But I would say that most of the time, my sentimentality and my memories are reflected in my images, not in a video. I can look at an image and everything that it took to capture that image. For example, you know, I was in Grand Teton a year ago, November, and it was minus 16 to minus 20 where it's Snake River Overlook, lots of snow on the ground, no other photographers there. And this is a place that's usually, you know, you're butt cheek to butt cheek with people. And my client and I 
were there waiting for the moon to set by, near Grand Teton. I'll never forget the Alpenglow, the purple, the stars, the, the, the fog, the clouds, the colors. There was no wind, so you could have long exposures. And, and I can look at those images, uh, several of my favorite images from that morning, and I can feel the cold on my fingers. I can hear the silence. I can see the hoarfrost in my mind. And a video just wouldn't be the same to me. I'm not, I'm not saying video is not equally important. I'm a kid that grew up watching, you know, I, I was the one that turned on PBS on Sunday mornings. And when it was a special about people and not wildlife, I was like, oh, crap, there goes a whole week. I got to wait another week, you know. Um, and for me, there is something very special, Mark, about images. And it is that beauty that transports us back into time and and there's so much that goes into that image. You know, in the end, we all teach classes on on shutter speed and flash and balancing ambient light and flash and and the choosing the right focal length and yada, 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 yada. But at the end, nobody looks through image and goes, oh, my gosh, the aperture 6.3 just does it for me. You know, you look at your image and you go, man. Look at that bug. I will never forget what that beetle on that leaf and that Ecuadorian forest, cloud forest was like and what it was like kneeling in the mud and trying to lean forward without spooking it and, and all of the elements that went into taking that image. It is so much more different for me. And it's not that I don't appreciate video. I just believe it has a different role to play in our life. Well, And that that picture of that bug, if you've done it up on a nice metal print to put in your house and you walk by it every day, it triggers your memory, that fond thought. And, and the video, like I said, is, is can be incredibly dynamic. But how often do you go to your device and turn it on and watch it versus seeing your favorite images that transport you to those, those well, I, it's, for lack of a better word, favorite memories in the field? I just, that's what I'm, I mean, I love the video. I love both in that, that, that challenge of, of creating both, but I'm still, I'm still stuck in the world of, of still photography because they stay with me longer because of that exposure to the favorite images that way. And same with people purchasing them. If they purchase a video, you know, I had a gentleman in the, in the Rockies this fall, uh, very charismatic fellow had done all kinds of documentaries wanting to sell them, sell the DVDs. And it's like, great. You know, some of them had tremendous appeal to my wife and I, but how often we watch them versus somebody buying prints from you. But anyway, that's just something about still photography. I'll stop there, but I love the stories. I want, you know, if, if time permits that the, the frogs, the, the poison, the dart frogs, I mean, what would, what was, I don't want to jump back in time necessarily. You guys can stop me here. But I would love to see them. They're, they're the colors and 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 the, and it's such a foreign world that they live in. As you say, when you experience these things, what was that like photographing them, finding them? How easy is it to find them? And were there different species you see in captivity or online? You can see the ones with the vibrant reds and or blues, and I mean, such photogenic amphibians. Well, one of the things we do is the first day. In in Panama at this location is we walk to the forest and Ufaga pumilio is a species of frog that has an obscene number of color morphs, tiny dart frogs. Most people are, fam are familiar with the strawberry poison dart frog, which is reddish, but there are so many different morphs and these islands in the Panama. And unfortunately one of them we're seeing development and clearing the lots and, Oh man, makes your heart break. 
But you walk through the forest and we show them how impossible it is to try to get up close to one for everybody to get shots because these little guys can hop up trees. They're tiny. They're active. They're mobile. I got one shot or I got three shots of one species just out in the wild roaming, able to get close to the mackerel. I was by myself, so that made it easier to do. So what we do is we have a local naturalist. And what we'll do is we'll actually, because we help them realize you're not going to just walk around in the forest and photograph these. But what we do is then we, we actually collect some, photograph them in a setup, and then put them right. We actually put flags. You do not take these to different islands and let them go. They they go right back to where we got, gather them. We shoot near there if we can. But put flags out, number which one it is, put it in a setup, shoot. And uh, they're handled by a, a gentleman who does this day in and day out and, and knows all the morphs found on the different islands. But what you see are green morphs, yellow morphs, red morphs, you know, just bronze, all kinds of amazing colors. And I actually kept poison dart frogs when I lived back in the Austin area. Out here, it's so remote and just so much more challenging, and I'm gone from home. But they're an absolutely fascinating creature and a lot of misnomers about them and, and what they really do and how dangerous they are. Uh, but when you can see them up close, not just their delicacy, but their absolute beautiful colors. And um, I, I was just processing an image tonight that is one of my favorite images of a frog I've ever captured. Just gorgeous. And if you go to night walk, you can find many other species of frog. I found the green uh, climbing toad, you know, lots of neat species at night. And I love the challenge of putting on a headlamp and trying to find frogs on leaves and under things and photograph them in situ. But with poison dart frogs, you're just not going to pull that off. Now, the Dendrobates erratus, which is the large green, black uh, poison dart frog, we actually go to a chocolate uh, farm. And, uh, oh my gosh, the chocolate-infused rum. So you get to photograph dart frogs, and then we have chocolate-infused rum. If you want to go with me on a workshop, go to Panama. I will show you where you'll spend a lot of money on chocolate. Uh, but we go to this farm, and, and the owner actually is doing it in such a way to improve the habitat for the dart frogs. So it is a place you can go, and, and these are large ones, and they're just hopping all over the place. You go to the compost pile, and they're everywhere. And, uh, you know, so it makes it easier for clients who aren't that mobile or whatnot to get to get images. But the beauty of this is, you know, a lot of these these amphibians are in, are in danger. They're losing habitat, just like we saw on this one island. And if we don't teach people to appreciate them, and most people are going to go to Panama to see them in person. But if people don't appreciate things, they're not going to protect them. You know, no matter how much we want to tell people about. But if they can see my image and I can say, hey, look. You know, all you have to do is leave the leaf litter. Instead of clearing out your lot, you're going to build a house. Great. Leave the leaf litter. Leave everything else the same. You don't have to rake it, make it look like a god-awful, boring English garden. I know I some people love that crap. Oh, my God. There's nothing about wildlife for that, you know. Um, sorry to the queen, but I, it's just not my thing. She's but calling. She's texting litter. me right now. I bet she is. I'm sure she gives a rat's butt about what I have to say about anything. <laughs> so I know that just a little bit of education could go a long ways on the difference it can make in your yard for your local habitat. And you may not be able to do something in Panama, but what if you could do something in your own yard if you live in the Northeast for some frog up there or something for the toads in your house, you know, put a little 
upside down broken clay pot to provide a little humid area for them. And so for me, whenever I'm doing macro photography, I'm always trying to take people into a world that most of them are never going to go. I love photographing and playing with things that most people are terrified of centipedes, scorpions, venomous snakes, because I want them to understand you don't have to kill everything, you know, just let it be. It's, it, it doesn't want to mess with you. And the closer I get to those things, like some of these beetles that I see in central and South America, you know, most people walk by and never notice them, but you get up close and my favorite thing to do is know where it is, run and grab clients and go, oh, my gosh, come here. You're not going to believe what you're going to see. And for them to walk around. And for 99% of the time, they don't care about a beetle. But then they walk up and they see that one and they go, oh, man. And then you just hear clickety, click, click, clickety, click, click. And then I go, oh, my gosh, there we go. That's when I get stumped is when people suddenly have an enthusiasm for something that they didn't care about before they arrived on site. And they're going to go back and share that picture and their, everybody, all their f- Facebook friends, whether it's in folks or not, are going to go, Oh my God, it's a great image. Look at that beautiful beetle. You know, they're going to love it. And if we have to spread that message more and more, I'm not a big fan of the negative, the sky's falling conservation message. I'm more of a let's show successes Let's show what happens when, we, when we're good conservationists, when we protect species. Let's talk about the history of conservation and how we got to where we are. And let's encourage people to do what they can instead of the skies falling. That just doesn't ring. I think most people are out raising kids and, and trying to pay taxes and figure out how they're going to pay their bills tomorrow. That, 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 that message grows old. But if you go, look at this beetle, and it's so pretty. What can we do to try to help it survive or whatever, or at least teach them to appreciate, wow, you know, I really didn't think about bugs, but my gosh, that thing looks crazy, you know? Yeah, Panama's a great destination, man. We'll definitely go back usually in the fall. Sometimes we do spring, but if you like a relaxed pace, you want to sit on a porch and just wait for the sloths and the double-toothed kites and owl monkeys to come to you, it's a great spot. Some chocolate-infused rum. And chocolate infused. Oh my gosh, I forgot what he mixed it with. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, he mixed it with some kind, I don't know if it was half and half or cream or something and all this stuff. And I called it a dirty milkshake. Oh my gosh, it was so good. It was great, you know. Yeah. And that's a part of the fun about the workshops for me is great food. Oh, on the Alaska workshop, I had some of the finest meals that have ever been prepared. And you you sit down, you're having camaraderie, fellowship laughing, reminiscing about the day, bragging on clients' images, reflecting on all you've seen. Man, if that doesn't get you stoked and love what you do and realize how fortunate we are to get to do what we do, I don't know what why you're even doing it, you know? I feel it. It's a great point. Yeah. So where, okay, where is your favorite destination? Because I hear excitement in your voice when you talk about all of them. But what's the one that you know what? each year you just can't <laughs> wait to get back to? Kevin at Wildside used to start out with, Lee, would you like to go to and fill in the blank? And now what he says is, Lee, let's look at your calendar. <laughs> because he knows my answer is yes, unless it's a place where I might get my head cut off. You know, um, I'm kind of fond of it, even though it's kind of big and thick here. <laughs> I... I love being wherever I'm at. Of course, I live out in the Big Bend area because I have great memories from it. But there is something majestic about desert mountains. 
there is something rugged. It's primal. It's it's the storms, the monsoons, the wildlife that makes it live like a black bear in Big Bend looks at a black bear in Yellowstone. My God, you got it easy. You're a softy, you know, um, a black bear, in Big Bend works year round to survive. You know, the rattlesnakes, th- there is so much life in the desert that it has a, people don't discover because most of them never get off the paved road. But if you wait for a rain and then you go out the next week, you're going to be amazed at the diversity of insects and wildflowers and plants that just suddenly spring out of nowhere. And so for me, I think that renewal, you know, when you go through a drought and everything's rugged looking, and then all of a sudden a couple of weeks of monsoons and it's totally changed. You know, with all due respect, some places up north, you don't get that, you know, unless the snow melts and things are like, okay, they come back up. But it's not the same. It's not a it's not a renewal. It's it's kind of an expected routine. Whereas out here, it's life and death. You know, I mean, I've seen black bears in Big Ben that I'm looking at them and you go, man, they probably don't have another month left in them because of the struggles. And I think throughout my life, I can relate to some of that. I, I just feel like there's a, when you go to Big Bend, People either absolutely love it or hate it. Nobody ever goes, ah, yeah, it was okay. You know, there's it's one of two extremes. And I love that extremism. I love that challenge. I love that. I love the climate of the desert. So, yeah, I won't lie, man. When I'm on my knee, in my knee pads at night in Panama, and I hate humidity. But when I got sweat pouring off and I'm bent over a leaf trying not to have sweat scare something and and make sure my diffuser isn't quite touching and I get that perfect angle on the weirdest looking Katie did on a Katie did that would be a nightmare for most people and I can capture it tack sharp with well-balanced light. Man, I look back at my camera and all the clients are asleep. My wife's asleep. Everybody else is asleep. And I'm in that forest by myself. You know, one night, the last night, one of my clients decided to come out with me, and he's an absolutely gracious man. One of the we should all have a hundred clients uh, like Eddie and Chris. They're just phenomenal couple. But he decided to go out with me that night. And as much as I love going out on my own and walking through the forest at night, when you're sharing it with a client and you're saying, "Oh, oh, dude, get this! Look at this! Look at this!" You know, and you find a big toad here, and just right here is a frog, and you're like. Oh my gosh, right next to each other. Don't don't bounce this leaf and spook it. That that right there is what helps me fall asleep hard at night. You know, I like to fall into bed at night knowing knowing that I don't have an extra ounce of energy to pour into that day. And uh, that I made the most of what was put in front of me because I don't know what days might last. You know, I have a weird multiple familial lipoma syndrome where I have three to 400 tumors in my body and it makes life really challenging at times, you know, everywhere from pea size, I've had baseball sized. So I lay down at night, sleep. It's never comfortable. So what I want to do is, man, I want to just suck the wind out of every day that I possibly can. And I'm learning at 52 that sometimes sucking the wind means sitting on the couch and having to say today sucking wind is relaxing. And that's hard for me because there's so much in this world. You can't see it all. You can't photograph it all. And you haven't photographed it from this angle, (laughs) you know? So 
I'm one of those, I love taking lots of shots of things because you just never know when you're going to see it again. So, man, I squeeze. It's like if you give me a towel full of water and that's my photography, I am wringing that towel out until not another, not another drop of water falls. <laughs> my clients are off. Uh, I don't just limit to four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon, a big bend. <laughs> They'll look at me in the evening. I'll say, hey, if you want to go till sunset, they're like, Oh my God, I've had a full day, man. It's been amazing. And that's what I want them to do. I want them to just squeeze every drop out of that day and know that they've had a special day. Well, you can hear that passion. I mean, when we talked about early on, we were kind of joking about discussing over the, uh, the chat room that first time. And even then, you know, we'd, we'd send a question to you and just ran with it and you'd see your eyes light up and that passion that you carry just in conversation here. I can't imagine how much more passionate you are when you get out there with a group of folks and, and get into an area that they've never been before. And, you know, you're the kind of, you're the kind of guy that I'd, I'd love to go shoot with. And I think you can hear that just, just in this short conversation that we've had so far. And I I appreciate you sharing that passion with with all of us. You know, I'm the kind of leader that a lot of my clients end up taking pictures of the crazy stuff I do to get images. Um, I remember climbing on the beach in the Galapagos. There was a lava lizard on a fallen you know log, and so you know obviously I'm just not going to walk right up because I had a wide angle lens and I wanted to. I love wide angle uh, macro of wildlife so that you get a close view but you can also see the habitat so i lay down on the beach and i'm not a lay on the beach guy sand gets in places where it never belonged i'm not you look at me I, i'm either pink or white with freckles that's my two skin tones so i don't lay on the beach to look better but i will crawl in the sand and with the olympus gear it's so light i can hold it one-handed so i'm crawling in the sand working my way up slowly extending the camera getting the lens you know a couple inches from this lizard and I hear click, 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 click. And I know they're all taking pictures of me, which nothing looks worse than me on it, on film. But that is what I'm willing to do if I lay on cactus, if I'm laying it. I remember laying it for horseshoe crabs coming up in the sanderlings, uh, scrambling to eat the eggs on the Atlantic coast in cold water. And I hadn't planned on being wet and muddy that day, but that's what it called for. You know, I, I think for me, Sometimes the harder you have to work for an image, the more rewarding it is. And that's a part of the pursuit of it for me is that if I have to be in a weirdly weird, uncomfortable physical angle or position to capture an image, then, you know, you paid the price sometimes, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I'm all for walking up and grabbing an easy image, like sitting on this lodge's porch and photographing slaws. But I feel a bit more sense of accomplishment. I like to photograph birds. A lot of people don't care about it. I love certain sparrows or skulkers because I know how hard it is to get an image of them. You're not setting up blinds and perches and having these sparrows land on these out in the open. I know what it takes to photograph those. So I often appreciate images that most other people, social media crowd, could care less about because I go, oh, my gosh, I know what it takes. Uh, took to get that image. I mean, we all see nice wing spread images from the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, we know it came from one of the, the 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 photography ranches, and I love those places. I have nothing against them. I'll shoot there. I love it. But you know, I'm also about a lot of times having to work hard to get that image. Laying in the snow in Yellowstone when it's cold, uh, 
you know, that one stands out in my mind. Laying in the surf when the water's cold and sands all in your, you know, nether regions, getting up in places you don't want it, you know. But you stand up and you look at the back of that camera and you're like, oh, yeah, that's the ticket right there. That, that, that right there. And you don't care if another person likes the image or not. You know what it took to capture that image. And, and I'm one of those, I frankly, I don't have a big social media following. I don't really care. I mean, I'm sure you want to follow me. Great. I don't care. That's fine. Love for you to enjoy my images. I don't go pursue big social media followings. And because for me, if I love the image, I don't care how many other people like the image. My, the image I've sold for the most money garnered a whopping 17 likes on Facebook. It was a big, giant panorama of a serial cumulus cloud blowing up over the Chisos Mountains. Big panoramic. My aunt was with me. She had never been. Is probably 108 that day. And I said, once you stay in the car, I got to go capture this. Walked several hundred yards out into the desert, set up, captured the panoramic, stitched it, threw it up on social media, converted it to black and white. You know, it laid a big turd, social media speaking. But when a client calls you and says, I need that eight feet in length, not counting the frame, you know, cha-ching, cha-ching. So... You know, social media, don't let that be your guide for which images you should be or should not be shooting. You should shoot your passion, what you love. And frankly, some of my favorite images, when I throw them up on social media, they hardly get any attention. And images that I can capture day in and day out, people love. And that's fine. That's what they're interested in. But let your passion drive you in your photography, and it's going to show in the results. I see beautiful cityscapes, you know, at, at Blue Hour and, man, with the Olympus gear. It's just it's just perfect for that. And I think next time I go back to Austin, I want to do that. And then I think about driving in the traffic and dealing with the crowds, and I go, crap, man. I'd rather be on my knee in a Panamanian jungle looking at some Stephen King nightmare on a leaf and photograph that. <laughs> I'm with you. You have such energy, such energy, Lee. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you. I mean, we've talked before about doing, you know, doing some workshops together and stuff. And I, I'm always thinking, of like, there's just no way I could keep up with them. It's just. Oh, sure you could. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You'd be just fine. I, I tell you, you know, I've always been this way. When, if I'm passionate about something, and I have just as much energy to oppose something if I don't like it, right? But. I think a large part of it is, is driven by gratitude. I really never thought in my life I'd be doing this ever. And I would look at what other people do and, and have accomplished and think, gosh, that's really what I want to do. And I pursued other people's dreams when I was younger. And, you know, for many of the people that are listening to this podcast, they, they're probably not pursuing being a professional photographer in the sense of making a living at it. And frankly, you don't have to necessarily be, the best photographer to be great photography workshop leader. You just have to, you have to be really good with people and be able to teach them. And I've known some great photographers who suck at being with people. So, you know, they're never going to be great quote unquote professional photographers doing workshops. But what I would say is every time you're going to go photograph and Dawn, you've been throwing up some beautiful images at some great locations, you know, polar bear stuff. And I haven't got to do polar bears yet. So I hate you for that, but uh, you've been throwing up some beautiful work. And, you know, the more gratitude that flows out of us, I think our clients and the other photographers around us are going to pick up on that. How can I not be excited when I'm standing there watching some of these magnificent beasts and scenes unfold before me, a beautiful sunset, 
or, or when you're in Big Ben and the lightning's coming over your head and 95% of people would be cutting bait and running for the safety somewhere. And I just hear that clap of thunder and feel the ground shake. And you couldn't drag me away with a bulldozer, you know, forget personal safety. I want to take in that moment, absorb it. I'm out there. There's nobody else around me usually when the lightning's there. And I just really don't know how you can't get stuck. I mean, I've pumped my fist by myself in the middle of nowhere, Big Ben, just going, yes, yes, yes. I cannot believe what's unfolding before me. You know, everybody else is back in the restaurants in Terlingua or in their hotel room. And I'm just hearing that lightning just light up the sky and the nitrogen turning the sky purple. Man, how do you not? How do, you, how do your blood just not pump faster, you know, when that's happening? I think the saddest thing I see are people who've been doing this a long time, and you don't see that passion. You don't see that energy. Uh, it's just, oh, I'm just, I'm going to the Amazon again or going to somewhere here again or whatever. And I think, oh, I hope I never get like that. <laughs> find it the next destination, if that ever happens, right? It's just too much on this planet. I mean, not too much. It's just so much that we can... We, as you pointed out earlier, Lee, we we can never in a lifetime experience a fraction of it. I think for people who might get caught in that rut, it's time to look at a new, a new experience. It's just so so many things. Whether it's a different type of of wildlife photography, macro, like you say, or purely a whole new region and ecosystem. I'm talk talk about a, a mental reset, right? When you travel and you have to go to somewhere, a different culture, a different part of the planet we haven't been to. We're just totally living in the present one step at a time. And when it works out, it's one of the most thrilling, rewarding experiences we can have. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, I, you know, my encouragement to people who feel that way would be to, to look at the map, spin that globe and hit a spot, see what comes up. And, you know, also don't take for granted any creature. I had some clients one time in Yellowstone. And we had stopped for another coyote. And I heard, well, we have coyotes back where we live. Oh, my gosh. That that was kind of sad to me because, I mean, coyotes in the snow, coyotes where you live. I'll photograph every bloody coyote that's going to be cooperative and help me. They're a gorgeous creature. They have a phenomenal DNA where when you start trying to kill them off, they their litter size increases dramatically. I mean, you got to love something that says, really, you want to get rid of me? Watch this, you know. Um, their survival skills, I mean, we don't call Wiley Coyote for nothing. And I don't ever want to get to a place in my life where I'm tired of photographing something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to get there. If it's a house sparrow in beautiful light, I'm, I'm clicking the shutter. And I, I have photographers at times that, well, I photographed that before. In that light, at that location, at this time and place? No. It's okay. It's your tour. I'll do whatever you want. But to me, that strikes kind of a discordant note in my heart that I don't want photography to become like collecting stamps or collecting coins where you just check, 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 check. Like I would hope that the one millionth image of a coyote for me produces the same level of excitement as the first image of a coyote does for me. That's the way I feel like then the experience and the photography have meshed into a really pretty harmonious life. Otherwise, 
again, a photography without experience is kind of cold, sterile, and an experience without photography, really, it's without an image in photography. But when you can blend those two things together, whether it be in the Amazon, whether it be in Central Park in New York City, Yellowstone in winter, Big Ben, polar bears with dawn, I mean, gosh almighty, I, I, I tell you, I see this occasionally from clients, and you'll see like, well, we had better steak in Argentina or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but this steak's phenomenal. Man, like, I don't want to get to the place where that describes my life. Like, you know what? So what if that coyote's scrawny? Sometimes I'll admit when a bird flies by and it's in god-awful molt, and you're like, oh, I don't want to pull the trigger. It's missing, you know, half its primaries. It looks like crap. But you know what? That's a part of that bird's life just as when it looks great. And I find myself thinking, God, why am I thinking like that? Like that bird didn't say, well, I look crappy now, so don't bother photographing me. No, it's a part of the stage of that bird's life. It's a different challenge. And I think I would encourage wildlife and landscape photographers, man, you know, particularly as you get older, maybe your mobility is limited. You can only shoot from pullouts along the road. So what? Work the crap out of those pullouts. You can get some phenomenal shots at some of the best pullouts. So don't ever let that staleness or coldness creep in. And if it is, then something's happened to your passion. I would agree with you there. And I think another point, too, along those same lines is that our world's changing so fast in front of us, so fast. So if, you know, the more that we we appreciate what's in front of us, whether it's the simple thing from a, a sparrow or a squirrel or a chipmunk to the most exotic dart frog or polar bear or, you know, difficult to reach subject, it's, you know, take it all in because it is changing. You know, it's that's part of what we do. We're we're trying to capture those moments in time to to document and to share what we're seeing, how it's changing. You know, it might not be there tomorrow. We might not be there tomorrow. I uh, you know, I've read about the the future Mars trip and people that are all excited and signing up to go on that trip. And I thought, my God, I'd rather be shot in my foot. I don't how do you want to go to a place that's so sterile, no bird song, no flowers, no trees? I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm sure there's some people who love Mars. They'll have a great time. But for me, it would be a death sentence, emotionally, passion. You know, I want the vibrancy. There's a reason I live on this mountain in West Texas. I mean, you know, I walk out the front porch and watch a mule deer and, and white-tailed bucks out in the yard and I'm still surrounded by that. And I would encourage people, you know, turn off that 24-hour news and grab your camera. Your life will be a whole lot better. Walk out and meet other photographers or other people who appreciate nature. Your life's going to be so much better. You know, you're not going to get angry or in a in a, in a bad mood when you're watching a, a coyote scavenge an elk carcass in Yellowstone or when you're watching uh, insects uh, flying around your yard, you know. I really would encourage people for your photographers, get out and let nature speak to you. Whatever it is you like to photograph. Once you immerse yourself in that world and you look through that, you know what I like about that viewfinder is that when you're looking through there, in a way we're entering that creature's world and we've left ours to some extent. And it's like we get this window and 
I try to encourage people, don't think of that coyote as a species or this beetle as a species. But when I have that individual in front of me, it might be Bob or Susie, that individual, not that species, but that individual, I'm getting to interact and encounter that beetle, not that species, that beetle or that frog in its life cycle and it's and in its typical hunting or whatever it's doing at the time I come across it. And you know, when you're doing that, all these other all this other junk suddenly just washes away. You know? It's hard to look through your viewfinder and be upset about something you saw read on Facebook, you know? Couldn't agree with you anymore on that. On most of what you said tonight, but that that last statement, you know, get out and, and just enjoy it and live it and see it for yourself. I think that says it all as a photographer, as well as, you know, just somebody who's out to get a break from the, the rat race. That's funny, Ron, I see behind you, you know, you have a, there's a photo of a bison back behind you. And I prefer to call them buffalo. And I know that's that was one of those get stuck in the snowbank images right there. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm a, you know, when you grew up in the West and you like the old West history, it's a Buffalo. It's, you know, Buffalo Bill. It wasn't Bison Bill. And I know, but I, so I understand, but I prefer Buffalo because of how I grew up and where I was raised. But, you know, I see that image and growing up as a child and going to Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge, that was one Theodore Roosevelt established to try to help save the Buffalo. And so a lot of my times as a youth, Buffalo were very prevalent. You know, they were big. They were easy to see. And so when I look at that image, even behind your head there, you know, it takes me back to so many memories as a child and what life was like. And and there's something powerful and beautiful about bison. And so, you know, whatever, again, that's triggered my passion. And I want photographers to, you know, I, I can look at portrait and wedding photography and greatly appreciate it. I have zero passion 99.9% of the time to do it. But it doesn't mean I don't respect the work. I can't learn from the work. Sometimes their lighting is spectacular. And I think I want to take that lighting and replace that bride with a poison dart frog. <laughs> and that'll be great. And, you know, I, I look at industrial photography. I look at food photography and I'm constantly learning and I can appreciate it, but I have no passion about those things. I've tried in the past, but you can't manufacture passion. And when you're particularly when you're a beginning photographer or even an, an amateur, whatever, whatever level you're at, and you're looking at social media, Instagram, and you see these phenomenal images, you know, that Ron or Mark or Dawn's taken or, or pick your favorite photographer. You think, oh, I want to go capture that image. Here's what I would say. Think about what passion you have behind that image and then go try to allow that passion to reflect in your images. Don't try to replicate mine or Dawn's or whoever's Lisa's, whatever, anybody, any great photographer that I've talked about or that's influenced me. Uh, sometimes it triggers ideas of things I'd like to try to do. But I found that if I work hard trying to replicate what someone else has done, my images just don't speak that strongly. But it's when people can look at your image and go, oh, that's Lee. Then I know I've done my craft well. You know what I mean? That's what I really think we all ought to be pursuing, regardless of your skill level. A beginner and uh, are the, the, the greatest professional out there. 
the reason people respect them and enjoy them is because their passion comes through in that photography. I remember there was a photographer early, early on when I was learning you know, more specific about nature photography. Somebody had said that Ansel Adams has been done. Be your own photographer. You know, it's it. You can learn from the masters. You can learn from people that you appreciate their work, but still find your own style. You know, be your own, create your own sense of photography, your own your own style of what you produce. You know, and that's like you said that that does ultimately that will create a much more unique perspective in your photographs, as well as create a a, a look that others will start to emulate as your work. That's right. That's right. Even your post-processing techniques, you know, everybody looks for the perfect answer on how to how to post-process uh, a specific image. But again, that's where your passion and your uniqueness should come out. Yes, there's some things that don't look good and there's some things that look really good, but there's still a lot of room in that area for even our own personal expression and how we post-process. I see a lot of images on Instagram. Some uh, There seems to be a real popular moody kind of style. You know, uh, Brooke, her, her Instagram, I think it's Brooke Little Bear. She's Olympus. I can't remember. I think she's an educator too. Yeah, she's an educator. We have visionaries and influencers and, and you know, she's this dark moody style to a lot of her images. It's beautiful. She has way more social media followers than I do. And I love her post-processing style and her approach on her photography. And I would encourage people, go out there and look at Brooke's images, but, but don't necessarily go try to replicate them. She lives in an area. She masters that area. She knows the wildlife in that area. And, you know, Wherever you live, go figure out how to master that area. If you don't have the funds to travel, you know, no matter how much money you have, you probably aren't going to master the Amazon by going there 27 times. You're probably going to go there once, maybe twice in someone's life. Or if you're lucky, like a, to be a workshop leader, we might go there multiple times and you might start to master some areas of it. But take time to learn those areas nearby, whether it be wildlife refuges or, or parks or you know, if you're fortunate to live near a national park like myself, you know, or, you know, Don Rocky Mountain or whatever, you know. I think that is a excellent point. And I think it's probably a really good point for us to kind of finish up our conversation. And just you've been so enlightening and so inspirationally in what we've talked about tonight. And I highly encourage people to go out to your social media pages, go take a look at the workshops that you lead, take a look at what you do down in Big Bend. You know, that's a great opportunity because that's not, for most people, that's not a terribly far place. Um, Big Bend itself is a little bit remote, but getting to Texas is not a difficult thing. Um, so Instagram handle, we definitely want to share what that is. Big Ben Birding Photo Tours. So everybody go out and check that out. You'll get, he, Lee has a great sense of the wild, not only the birds that are down there, but the, the wildlife in the area as well. And if you haven't seen it, check out that PBS show too. It's actually, it was out about a year ago and it's, I think it's still available out there. Um, so Yeah, the, the wild frontier of Texas, Big Ben. Uh, the Wild Frontier of Texas. It was, it, I think it's on the PBS app now. So yeah, yeah, it was really fun. So thank you very much, Lee, for joining us tonight and bringing all of your, your wisdom to our listeners. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Thanks, Mark and Ron, for helping us produce this 
this podcast for our members as well as people who are not members. And if you're not a member, I would highly recommend taking a look at NAMPA's website, nampa.org, or our Facebook page, which tends to be a pretty active page and that you can find us under just do a search for NAMPA and take a look at some of the opportunities that we have as well for, for learning and getting involved and seeing how NAMPA could benefit your own photography. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And we will catch you the next time on the Nature Photographer Podcast. Thanks for having me, guys.